This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. He should have been on top of the world. At just 48, Ted Trimpa learned he'd been given a Lifetime Achievement Award for his work to legalize gay marriage. He talked with Ryan Warner last year about what the award from gay rights group One Colorado meant to him. What's important about it is that people see that you get awards for this kind of work, that you can do and be out and do very well and be accepted and be happy. But at the time, Trimpa, political strategist in Colorado, was sliding into an emotional black hole that he says he's just now emerging from. It was brought on by surgery. He had to repair a valve in his heart. Only after being on the brink of suicide did he learn that depression is common among people who get open-heart surgery. And a top cardiologist in Colorado says it's not discussed enough. Dr. John Rumsfeld of the CU School of Medicine is here, along with Ted Trimpa. Welcome to the both of you. Thank you. Thank you. Ted, you wrote us saying you'd experienced, quote, a gradual drift down with rough waves of emotion. Can you say more about what the past year has been like for you? Well, when I was first diagnosed and they kind of walked me through kind of a timeline of what um, I was going to experience, uh, what was described was, you know, it has to be open heart surgery because they have to get in to see how bad the valve was to see whether they have to replace it or repair it. Then you'll have, you know, you know, a few months of physical recovery because um, it's tough because you're, you know, cutting open your chest. And then they said you may have some feelings of feeling down somewhere along the way. And if you do, be sure to give us a call. And what I didn't realize at the time is that I guess when they say feeling down, what they really mean is you could slide into an absolute black hole in a, in a place that I never truly believed existed. Um I have such a different appreciation and understanding for depression. Um, I always kind of thought I'm a Kansas farm kid. I thought you could just shake this stuff off. Oh, you feel down. Good God. Everybody has a bad day. You know, lose a thousand head of cattle. That's a bad day. Um, but here, it it was like being on a boat in really rough water and waves of emotion would hit you. And it would hit me at four in the morning. It would hit me at two in the afternoon. And I finally reached a point where... You weren't thinking, oh, I face death, you know, devil's at the door or the angels are at the door. It's a completely different feeling. It's just one of you're done. And it went to, well, how do I want to do this? And so I thought, well, I'll hang myself. You and thought had, about that. You oh, I'd mapped that out. Around. I knew how much rope. I knew the type of rope because I didn't want it to break. Um, I live in a two-story penthouse with a spiral staircase. I knew that landing that I was going to do it from. I knew the time of day was going to be four because of the way the sun at that time of year comes through the unit and how it would cast a shadow. Um, that's when it like hit me. I'm like, my God, what? Th- this isn't right. Um, and that's uh, when I called my doctor and he's like, wish you would have called sooner, um, but we got to get you on meds. And it took another four weeks, you know, for almost oh, a little over that before it really, it literally artificially lifts you. Uh, but... I want to play you a clip of when you were here last fall and talking about your heart surgery. Recuperating from open heart surgery, I'm learning, is a much longer process than I expected. But the prognosis is I shouldn't have problems for the rest of my life, as long as I stay in shape. So at that time, you were telling us one thing, but you were feeling something completely different? The drift. um, Because for me, the... The emotional, it was almost as if my body figured out 
in October. So the surgery, my year anniversary of the surgery is tomorrow because it was August 18th. The, to me, it was, you know, basically two months out from surgery, roughly. It was as if the body said, oh, God, okay, you're going to live. And something, chemically, something happened. And it, how I was looking at the world changed. And at first, I just thought, oh, my God, Ted, you've been sitting in the house too long. You know, you got to stop watch, watching, you know, 11-hour Benghazi hearings. So you're making excuses almost for this. Uh, yeah. No, I just thought, well, listen, you, you always blame yourself. Um, and it wasn't until I was having very vivid thoughts of doing what I just talked about that it, it hit me that I needed to seek help. I, I imagine it was it was hard for you to sit on the sidelines, not being able to work. I mean, last time you were on the show, you described yourself as a, as a workaholic and you'd just come off this major victory with the legalization of same-sex marriage. Did that make dealing with the surgery harder for you emotionally and compounded oh, sure. oh, that sure. feeling? Sure. I mean, there's only so much CNBC you can watch in a day. Mm-hmm. There's only so much CNN you can watch in a day. I will say this. I watched the whole Trump thing from the beginning, and you could see this disaster brewing. It's like literally impending doom. Um, so at least that part was fascinating. But it it's just hard because you can't, at least for me, I, I couldn't concentrate hard enough to be able to read a lot of books. So you sit there and you ponder and you're like, okay, I have to do my 30-minute walk today. Mm-hmm. I got to go up the stairs twice today. You know, I've, you know, if I cough, I got to hold my pillow. You know, am I taking my meds at the right time? And then once I started taking my antidepressants, I got freakish about that. I want to bring in uh, Dr. John Rumsfeld here, again, a cardiologist at the CU School of Medicine who studied the connection between heart surgery and depression. John, just how common is this? So the sad truth about depression and heart disease is that it's incredibly uh, common. Uh, Ted's story um, is unfortunately um, very common. And very when we common. say and when we say very common, uh, depression uh, is, affects maybe 3% of the general population, maybe 10% if you go into a doctor's office. But with heart disease, whether you've had a heart attack or heart surgery, as in this case, we see it in up to 30 of people. So one in three to one in five people who undergo heart surgery, like Ted, will not just get uh, down mood for a little while. That would be normal to have it be a couple of days and then go away. But we're talking here about weeks, you know, two or more weeks of feeling down, depressed, or hopeless, or losing interest in your normal activities. And unfortunately, sometimes having thoughts of suicide. Um, This is all too common, and it is largely overlooked uh, in the medical uh, field and in the general public. The awareness of it is very low. So why, if it's so common, is it overlooked by by medical professionals who are dealing with this on a, if you say, a common basis? So I think there are several reasons for that. Uh, First of all, it's the way we're trained uh, in medicine. Um, there are highly skilled psychiatrists and psychologists in Colorado and, and, and in the United States, of course. But they go through a different pathway of training right out of medical school than do surgeons and cardiologists and primary care physicians. And if you don't uh, specifically train in that area, you aren't necessarily seeing it under your purview of what you do in medicine and you don't necessarily go look for it. And the sad part of that is that screening for depression is so straightforward and simple. Uh, Treating it 
can, can be very effective. Uh, and what we need to do is break down those silos and take on the challenge of recognizing and treating depression. And then we need more public awareness uh, from family members, from loved ones, from friends, that if someone seems like they're feeling down and it's persisting or getting worse, um, that they ask for help because we can do it. I think there's a stigma, unfortunately. Clearly stigma. I, I, even talking to my doctor about it, wasn't completely clear to him because you just didn't didn't want to talk to anybody about it. Because you didn't want to believe it was true. So let me, let me address the stigma part of this. I think we need to completely change the way we talk about this. I worry, in fact, that even the phrase mental health makes it sound like it's something different than your physical health, like having other diseases or And it's so separate forth. from the two. Right. And, and, and it shouldn't be. So what, when a family member or someone, a good friend or, or whatever, we, if they had ongoing or worsening shortness of breath or chest pain or they were found to have high blood pressure, boy, we're, we're incredibly uh, aggressive mm-hmm. about t- treating, about screening, you know, finding it and treating it. Uh, and yet when it comes to depression or anxiety, uh, we uh, tend uh, to not do that. We don't look for it. We don't treat it. Uh, I think there uh, is, we can change that if we know that it's uh, bad for you. In other words, obviously you feel down and depressed. It could lead to suicide. But there's also a strong link between depression and doing worse in your other health uh, uh, diseases. So it's actually bad for your heart. Well, Ted, did you hesitate to talk about this partly because you work in a really high-profile profession? Yeah, absolutely. You don't want to show weakness. I mean, it's awful that that's the way the world is, but it is. And it seems to correlate exactly what you're saying. Well, I think that's right. Now, I would absolutely categorically say Ted is showing huge strength by bringing this out. I'd also like to draw the parallel to former President Bill Clinton, who underwent heart surgery and also experienced major depression after it. And he, uh, back when he did that, it did get some public and national attention appropriately. And I hope for a while it got some public dialogue about the need to recognize it uh, for uh, patients and their families, for the general public, that if you're feeling down, uh, you need to do some, seek uh, treatment for it. And don't, it's, you don't even have to categorize it as mental health. Just think of it as health and you get treatment for it just like you would high blood pressure or something mm-hmm. else. We're speaking with political strategist Ted Trimpa and Dr. John Rumsfeld of the CU School of Medicine. We're going to take a break here. We're talking about how open-heart surgery may have caused such such depression that Trimpa was on the brink of suicide. We'll talk about more of this after a break. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with political strategist Ted Trimpa and Dr. John Rumsfeld of the CU School of Medicine about the connection between open-heart surgery and depression. It was so strong for Trimpa, he was on the brink of suicide following his surgery. So we talked a bit before the break about how to deal with this connection between heart problems and depression. Ted, you said you mentioned it a little bit to your doctor, but he didn't really have that connection, made that connection about how serious it was. Did the doctor warn you at all that there was a higher probability that you may get depressed to the, to the point that you actually experienced? Uh, absolutely, yeah. I, I definitely do not want someone to leave with the impression uh, that my doctors weren't clear that you know, something could happen. It wasn't clear as you could be depressed, mm. um, but it was actually, bluntly, it was actually my family doc here who's the one who picked up on it the quickest. 
um, and walked me through, you know, the depth of what it could be. Uh, but I wasn't completely, the honest isn't the right word, but I would, didn't disclose how bad it was. I just described it as, hey, I'm always down. I'm having a tough time getting up. And he's like, Ted, you, have, you've been like this for a while. We need to do something about it. Um, so thank God to him for doing it. But I just, it, I just felt like I couldn't talk about it, which is wrong. And I imagine heart surgery brings up fears in some people that, that maybe they'll die sooner and, and, and maybe that creates kind of a depressed feeling. Can those really heavy feelings and disruptions of being off your feet for so long because of the surgery lead to the depression that we see? Well, so there's debate about whether or not heart disease, such as heart failure or heart attack or heart surgery, can actually lead to depression, or does depression itself uh, lead to heart disease or worsening heart disease? It may be both. Uh, It's still an area of research. But I think what's most important to do is say, while research is still going on, uh, we don't want to not treat. Uh, What we need to do is look for it and treat it. Uh, And Ted brings out an incredibly important point, which is that a person who is Feeling very depressed or anxious is probably pretty unlikely themselves to seek care, Mm. okay? So we need to have the health system as well as the public, your family, and your friends. Be aware this can happen. Screen for it. A lot of health systems like the VA health care system, the veteran system, screen for it regularly in all patients and in all heart patients. The American Heart Association has said all heart patients should be screened for depression. But right now in our health system, it isn't happening routinely, and it needs to. And then families and the public need to be aware so that we can help people who are in the state. It's a really devastating disease, and I think we should treat it as such and not talk about it as a state of mind. It is not. Uh, It is something that needs to be treated like a medical condition. So are there certain kinds of people more susceptible to suffering from depression when they go through something like this compared with other people? Yes, uh, there are. That is true. People who have a family history, and there's probably a genetic component here, are more likely to then have this happen, uh, or people who have had depression episodes in the past. Now, uh, what we want to say here is it can still, though, come out of the blue uh, for the first time because you've now undergone, in this case, a major operation. And I think what the one way to look at it is to say, no surprise, you undergo a major operation, you might feel down or a little blue for a few days. But if it goes on longer, if it's over the last two weeks, if it goes two weeks and you're feeling down or depressed, not interested in your activities, and especially if it seems to be sliding, as Ted said, getting worse, and you or a family see it, that needs to be diagnosed and treated. That is not something that is going to get better on its own. It's obviously dangerous in terms of things like suicidal thought. And let me make this point. It is bad for your heart, okay? We know that the state of depression raises your adrenaline uh, in, a, in a consistent manner and other bad changes in your, inside your body that are bad for your heart. So it's also we need to treat it for your heart. Ted, you, you said you eventually were diagnosed and, and figured out what was going on and, and you were put on antidepressants. Right. Um, is that the sole way you, you pulled yourself out of this, this dark hole you described? Um, actually, yeah. Uh, you so know, without of those, folks, you would have felt? Uh, well, I could tell you, this is my personal experience. I started taking the drug. Um, you could feel it. I could feel it in my body. There was like tingling in limbs. And it was about four to six weeks. And then all of a sudden, it was like this lift. 
And in, in, even today, because I'm still on it because I'm scared to go off yet, um, I feel like I'm being bullied. And it, and if, I, if you skip, because there was a one day when I was traveling and I forgot to take it, and I'm like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? And there was more of a psychological reaction to it than I think a, a physical one. But um, you, you definitely feel yourself being pulled up. And so besides drugs, are there other ways that people can treat this? Yeah, that's an excellent question because some people are hesitant to take antidepressant drugs or add another drug to other drugs they're taking like for their heart disease. What I would say is antidepressants are very effective. You're hearing it here firsthand uh, from Ted. So you want them in your uh, armamentarium. You know, you want to use them if you need to. Uh, There are other therapies. Uh, There's supervised exercise therapy can actually in some patients, maybe if it's not uh, heavy depression, Mm -hmm. help. Uh, There's what they call behavioral therapy where you work uh, with a psychologist or psychiatrist. Um, That can be very uh, effective. It's a different approach. Sometimes they use it with medicines for a while. You don't necessarily have to take the medicine uh, forever, as Ted alluded to. And last but not least, I want to say something about cardiac rehabilitation, okay? Mm -hmm. We know cardiac rehabilitation works. It improves your physical health. It improves your heart health. And it improves your mental health and, and, and addresses depression. And yet it's vastly underused in the United States, uh, probably because we haven't had the incentives in the healthcare system uh, to really get patients into it enough. It isn't reimbursed the same as doing a procedure. Um, hopefully changes that are happening now in the healthcare system will change that and we'll have more of it. Briefly, Ted, I understand that this week you will finally get to accept that Lifetime Achievement Award from One Colorado for your work for gay rights. Are you feeling more ready to accept it than you may have been a year ago on the heels of your surgery and everything that you've experienced? Oh, absolutely. When I was first told at 48, I'm going to get a Lifetime Achievement Award, I kind of laughed. I'm like, I'm only 48. Uh, And then literally two months later, I was diagnosed. And now my view of life is completely different. Um, So, yeah. Yeah, I am ready. Ready. I'm very, very happy. And you're feeling better? Much, much. Not out of the woods, but much better. Thanks to the both of you for joining us. Pleasure. Dr. John Rumsfeld is a cardiologist at the CU School of Medicine. And Ted Trimpa is a political strategist from Denver who shared his story of experiencing serious depression after getting open-heart surgery. Just ahead, the Beaver Creek fire burning in far northern Colorado is so exceptional, it has firefighters rethinking their tactics. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. The 36,000-acre Beaver Creek Fire that's been burning for eight weeks near the Colorado-Wyoming border is so different, it's forcing firefighters to kind of rethink the way they've fought fires for more than 100 years. The reason? Insects killed the timber years before it burned. Curtis Heaton is Director of Safety, Fire, and Aviation Management with the U.S. Forest Service, and he joins me now. Welcome to the program. Good morning, Nathan. Curtis, since 1996, beetle outbreaks have impacted roughly 4.3 million acres of forest in Colorado and Wyoming. Of course, the stands of dead trees can be seen around many parts of the state. How do you face these millions of acres knowing that traditional firefighting tactics might not work? Uh, It's a great question, Nathan. Uh, You know, the first thing that we do is uh, we we put a lot of emphasis on our pre-planning. And uh, it's no surprise we've, we've been seeing this occur for the last 10 to 15 years, so it's not like it's sneaking up on us. We're well aware of the 
of the changes that's occurring on the uh, out in the forest, particularly on the national forest lands. So we base it on, on on a risk assessment, and our first value at risk is always human life. So we emphasize our, our pre-planning, working with our state, local, and county uh, cooperators, sheriff's department, fire departments, and all those agencies. What are we going to do if we get a fire in this piece of country? And and that leads to things like evacuation planning and egress routes, and and then identifying what's really at risk. Okay, what's the most important thing out there? Uh, because from our standpoint, we're not too worried about those dead trees, but we're very worried about communities and infrastructure and things that they can't necessarily be replaced. So we put our emphasis on that pre-planning and then, and then have a robust response to the fire when it does occur. In the Beaver Creek fire, firefighters said many of the beetle-killed trees had fallen on the forest floor, almost creating a jungle gym of sorts. And and others fell when the winds picked up, uh, which they say significantly hampered their ability to work the fire from the ground. What other things make this fire unique? Yeah, and yeah, that's a great way of describing it. Now, and, and I also bounce back to your question about tactics. Uh, mm-hmm. So when when this type of situation occurs you know it's like walking through a park it, uh, a healthy forest is a lot like walking through a park it's open it's shaded it's nice and you can move through the uh, what we call the understory move to, across the ground across the landscape relatively easy but as these trees die off and start to fall over um, two significant things happen one we lose what we call the shade component it's no longer a shaded forest now there's bright sunlight coming through and that's occurring during the, you know during fire season, which is the hottest hottest uh, days of the year, and there's you know uh, 16 hours of sunlight, so that's heating up that floor that traditionally in the past would be shaded in 20 30 degrees cooler. So the fire the fuels the, the logs the twigs the branches are already preheated alone by sunlight, and then for us you know moving moving through that park environment is pretty easy, but now you're moving through as you described a jungle gym. And so you have to crawl over logs, you have to crawl underneath logs, and it's just it's very slow and very tedious. And for us to build a fire line, uh, we have to cut all that. So we cut it by hand with chainsaws, you have to pick it up, you have to move it. It's a very slow process, and what we call our, our line production, our ability to produce fire line, is greatly decre- uh, decreased from um, what would occur in a healthy forest where basically you're just raking pine needles or removing grass and those you know tw- twigs and branches, small things that a handful of firefighters can quickly move through and create a fire line. An incident commander, uh, that, uh, I'm sorry, uh, an incident commander on the Beaver Creek Fire wrote though that fighting this blaze took a lot of patience uh, because of what you're describing, having to cut through those those heavy timbers and, and things like that. What makes that approach different than let's say a, a historical fire that that is not in a beetle kill forest? Yeah, it's um, that's a great way of describing it. It's it's been a bit of a cultural shift for us. Um, you know, we're used to a rapid response. Uh, rather, you know, if we insert people by air or by ground, uh, by getting in and catching fire small, and that's what we you know we were success- successful at that for for the last hundred years. Uh, the change with these uh, these bug killed fires uh, in a couple different ways. One, it's just tougher to get in there, um, just because of the conditions I described. And then when these fires do get established. The uh, the intense heat, I mean, you know, think of it as a you know a stack of pallets or a giant bonfire that's burning. You know, there's so much there's so much fuel available that the heat's so intense that our firefighters literally just can't get close enough to engage it, 
and so they have to back off, and backing off means you have to be patient. Um, in addition to that, you have the safety hazard of trees falling over. You know, walking through a forest with a bunch of dead trees is dangerous. Uh, fighting a forest fire is dangerous. Fighting a forest fire with a bunch of de- dead trees can be very deadly. So it requires us to be more thoughtful and more uh, strategic and when and where we, you know, place our folks. And, you know, our people are always our most valuable asset and, and uh, cannot be replaced. So we look for opportunities, and, and those kinds of opportunities look like changes in the fuel type. So as you move out of the timber into grass or sage land, or you come up on roads or open ridges or green meadows, we look for those lines of defense that we can be safe and effective as opposed to actually engaging the fire in that nasty bug kill. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Curtis Heaton. He's Director of Safety, Fire, and Aviation Management with the U.S. Forest Service. He says fire burning and beetle-killed timber have forced firefighters to kind of rewrite the book on 100 years of firefighting knowledge. Now, 51,000 acres of forest were treated by the U.S. Forest Service last year through timber sales of insect-killed trees, thinning, and prescribed burns. And this year, the U.S. Forest Service says it wants to treat 94,000 acres. So it seems progress is being made here, but is that enough for you? You know, it's unfortunate. Uh, We're not going to get ahead of this problem. Um, It's very expensive to, you know, the best option for us is to go in and physically remove that tree that dead tree to get it out of the forest, make it a marketable product. That's the perfect world for us. That's not realistic on most of our national forest lands. I mean, the reason Colorado is so beautiful is because it's big, it's rugged, it's wild. And a lot of those areas we just can't access and we, and you know, we can't get equipment in there to do that type of work. So we're, we're grabbing the areas we can. Uh, we're focusing our efforts near communities. Again, going back to that risk-based based approach, that's what's important infrastructure, communities, public safety. So we're focusing our efforts around those areas, and a lot of the backcountry, a lot of that remote area, we're not going to get to. And it's just not realistic or cost-effective for us to, to physically remove those logs. So we're anticipating that we'll be dealing with this bug kill fire issue uh, for the rest of my career and probably for, uh, for decades. So you're saying it's almost certain that fires will continue to erupt in beetle kill forests. So how are you training firefighters about the increased personal danger with these types of fires? Uh, so you know that again, that's that cultural shift, and it's not it's not easy um, to change a hundred years of uh, momentum, but it's very real for us. Um, you know, we had a devastating year last year with multiple fatalities. Uh, we just lost a member of a hotshot crew um, from a tree strike um, this week on a fire in Great Basin National Park. So it's become very real to our firefighters that, the, you know, snags, snags kill us. Our, our folks are not superhuman. Um, they, they, can't, uh, they can't work in that environment and not get injured or, or seriously injured or killed. And so, so we're learning, and we're, and we're applying that patience model, and we're trying to work uh, as close as we can with the public. Uh, our cooperators get it, and, you know, we're talking with them. And that comes back to that, uh, that strategic look, where can we be successful, where can we be safe, and where can we continue to protect what's really important. So if you're doing your job and the federal government is working with communities, is there a way that people who own homes and property with Beetle Kill, what they can do to possibly diminish the, the concern of, 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 of this type of fire starting? You know, with or without the beetle kill, with or, with or without the dead trees, um, all, all the homes in what we call the wildland-urban interface, 
will sooner or later experience a fire. It's inevitable, and I'm talking over years or decades potentially. Sooner or later, we're, we live in an environment that's very fire adapted. Fire was here before we got here. Fire will be here long after we leave. So the threat of a fire occurring is very real. Um, private landowners, they can do whatever they want on, on their ground. That's that's their decision. And we encourage the, the kinds of programs we have in place, like FireWise Communities. We develop community wildfire protection programs with our partners. There's only so much we can do on our side of the fence, and we're not going to be able to suppress every single fire that happens. We run about a 90 95% success rate on, on catching fire small, but those few that get away have so much potential to go large and you know and overwhelm our capability. So if the homeowner's prepared, if the uh, private ground has been treated, if they've, if they've done the types of uh, um, you know thinning, uh, cutting, removing weeds, preparing their property um, in the event they do have a wildfire, then we can be successful protecting that. Uh, if it's just another stand of bug kill trees, it's the same problems we have up in that re- in that remote. Um, you know, that rough remote terrain, same hazards. Thanks for being here. All right. Thank you, Nathan. Curtis Heaton is Director of Safety, Fire, and Aviation Management with the U.S. Forest Service and is based in Colorado. Uh, you can see a map locating beetle-killed timber across Colorado at cprnews.org. Still to come, climate change is affecting some of Colorado's most historic cultural sites. We'll learn how the past may help us protect them in the future. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Think about archaeological artifacts, and you probably imagine them sitting in a climate-controlled museum. But in Mesa Verde National Park in southwest Colorado, traces of the ancestral Pueblo are everywhere. And as CPR's environment reporter Grace Hood explains, climate change is affecting what's in the park for visitors to see. Mesa Verde is known for its iconic cliff dwellings, but there's a lot more. Rocky remnants of homes and farming sites are scattered throughout the dense pinyon juniper forest. Wood attracts fire, though. This is really a good place to look at the impact of fire, I think. Take a walk inside this forest ravaged by wildfire and you get a sense of the daunting challenge that faces resource management chief Scott Travis. It's his job at the park to protect these sites. He points to rocks the ancestral Pueblo used as a farming terrace from the 1100s to mid-1200s. But this is also a good example of some pretty substantial damage occurred due to fire. Between 1996 and 2003, wildfires burned about half of the park. Where we're standing looks like an eerie forest from a Tim Burton movie. At this spot, Travis says heat and red firefighting foam damaged this farming terrace. And sometimes that just produces that red patina that I pointed to, but sometimes it, it results in spalls and eventual failure. Somewhere. So pieces of the stone will pop off if it's subjected to... A lot of high heat. And history gets lost. Despite this damage, there are positives that come with fire. The 2002 burn area we're standing inside led to 73 undiscovered sites, including traces of dams and homes. The threat of wildfire weighs heavy here, though. Scientists expect it to become more severe as the climate changes. Travis says that makes planning to protect these artifacts difficult. It's the variability. It's the lack of predictability for us. I mean, after hundreds of years of studying the weather, the predictability is is the challenging part. 
take this past winter. It was one of the coldest and wettest in recent memory. That moisture fed a greener underbrush compared to previous years. But when the summer dries up, that means a more severe wildfire threat. And there's heat. When I visited, it topped 100 degrees. It's not a question of if, it's when, and, and then how big. George San Miguel is natural resource manager at Mesa Verde. If it's hot, dry, and windy, it's nearly impossible to stop a fire. The Park Service is clearing trees and spots to limit the spread. Overall, San Miguel's concerned about losing too much of the forest to fire. It's more than just an ecosystem. If the woodland disappeared and this turned into more of a desert, the authenticity of the Mesa Verde story would be diminished to the visitor coming here. That story is told primarily through alcove sites like Cliff Palace and Spruce Tree House. Visitors stream down a sidewalk to approach one of the most popular cliff dwellings in the park. But they're not getting an up-close view this year. We've had stuff slide off the ledges, see that one sort of shape type this just up on the upper ledge underneath the small tree. Travis and park officials closed the inside because of falling rocks. He says those rocks are connected to previous attempts to stabilize spruce tree house and more extreme temperature swings that may be connected to climate change. It does seem as though we're getting freeze-thaw, 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 and post those freeze-thaw cycles, we're getting portions of that cliff face detaching in one form or another. Mesa Verde has already started working with an engineering firm to identify potential solutions. One answer may come from a close study of other alcove sites in the park with ceiling arches similar to that of Spruce Tree House. This gets at the heart of what Travis hopes will help save the park's artifacts from potential climate change. It's more research. Travis rolls out a large map the size of a flag on his office table. Put together... It was essentially a 500-meter grid of the entire park. The map divides Mesa Verde into squares. In the coming years, he wants park archaeologists to build a detailed picture of artifacts and cliff dwellings inside many of these sections. Ideally, he wants the Park Service to rank them on resilience to things like wildfire. To just be reactive is really not going to give us anything. Being problem-focused, having a programmatic design is at least to me, seems to be a more effective way to go about this. Eventually, Travis hopes to be able to predict how sites and Mesa Verde's iconic cliff dwellings will react to different climate change scenarios. I'm Grace Hood, CPR News. The philosopher George Santayana once said, those who cannot remember the past are doomed to repeat it. Marcy Rockman, an anthropologist with the National Park Service, wants to use the past to change the future. And that's especially true about climate change. Rockman says a solution to issues like the ones we just heard about at Mesa Verde National Park may lie in studying how previous cultures dealt with problems. Rockman joined us from her office in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Your biography says that you, quote, apply archaeological research to modern-day issues like climate change. How does that exactly work? Well, what I can say is we're still figuring out how that works. It's really interesting in a way because, in some ways, cultural resources have not had as much of a voice at the table in terms of climate change for a long time. But in a way, I think we, we already have a lot of the tools that we need to get started on this. And I had a conversation early in my climate change career with the Park Service with a colleague who was the superintendent in Alaska at at the time. 
And I was telling him that, in a way, I had some natural resource envy, I called it, because I said, for natural resources, sometimes allowing nature to take its course is, is something you can do, and it's the best possible choice. Let the barrier island migrate. Let the marsh move inland. You know, let nature do what, do what it does best. But my charge is to take care of the lighthouse that's on that barrier island. And so letting that move doesn't help the resource that I'm charged to protect. And he said in return that in a way he actually had cultural resource envy because our whole profession had developed a way of saying goodbye to things. And natural resources had not yet gotten to that point. So we do have tools that we can bring to this effort. Um, what we want to do is, is continue to grow that effort and broaden our base of understanding of, of what types of resources we most need um, to make sure we really preserve a diversity of those resources, um, that the heritage that we pass down to our next generation is as diverse and complex as we can possibly allow it to be, to try to understand what kind of heritage the next generations will need as they face um, their social future and their, and their climate change future. What about the person listening right now who says, how could an ancient culture have any effect on how people go about addressing the issues of climate change in the modern world today? I'll say one of the questions I often get is, well, we're not the past. We're not the ancient Maya. We're not the Chumash. Uh, we're not Native Americans. So how can, we're not the Anasazi. How can studying them actually really help us with the present? And what I like to point to with that is, um, we certainly aren't past hunter-gatherers or past agriculturists. It's, um, we have different systems. But looking at examples from the past can actually help us better understand some of our own assumptions about ourselves. So if we say, well, we want to become more resilient or we want to become more adaptive, we can write a definition of that down on a piece of paper or, or talk about it. But what's really interesting is to say, well, what does that actually look like in human terms? What does a resilient society look like? Can we find one? And there are some examples of some communities and societies through time that kind of fit our definitions, but then we can actually look at what they did um, over what time periods, and sometimes they did some things where like, oh, I like that, you know, that's, that's what we mean, but then they had some consequences, and we can see that because it's in the past where we go, oh, we don't like that consequence, so that helps us refine and better understand our own definitions of the directions that we're trying to go. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. We're speaking with Marcy Rockman. She's the Climate Change Adaptation Coordinator for Cultural Resources at the National Park Service. We're talking about how looking at the past may help find solutions for modern climate change. Marcy, is there a modern example of the process you use when looking at ancient cultures and tying them to the world we live in today? As you know, the Park Service is turning 100 years old this year. Right. And... In some ways, we are very up to the minute. Up to the minute. Um, one of my colleagues, actually down on the National Mall, uh, came up within a week of it hitting sort of the world. He had taken Pokemon Go and figured out a way to work it into their interpretation programs. And so you have people do, doing Pokemon Go all across the National Mall. But on the other hand, Parcerus was established in 1916, and some of the people who founded it and were some of the first people to set it up had military backgrounds. And one of the ways that the Parcerus, 
we won't even I won't even say just talks about it. The way we are currently organized and the way we talk about our organization and share information, we use the term chain of command, which is sort of a very military approach. Uh, and I had another colleague say recently, well, look at our uniforms. You know, they also still have that sort of military uh, approach to them. And the thing is, that original starting point still influences how we share information and make decisions today. We use computers and telephones to make those decisions, but the way we approach information, who uh, who makes the decisions, how those decisions are made, some of those deep structural issues still carry the traces of 100 years ago. So that's why understanding the past and where we come from really is important to understanding what we're doing today. Our technology may be different, but how we are doing it sometimes does come from from deep history. And we need to, un- I think, understand where that comes from so that when we start to make plans for adaptation, when they start to work or don't start to work, actually, um, we can start to diagnose that or design programs that will work better. It seems you're looking at affecting climate change through a purely human lens, but I could see some saying this issue must have a scientific approach. What do you say to that? Uh, I think we we definitely need both. Um, social scientists and, and my colleagues um, in, in the humanities, I don't think any of us would say we could solve the climate change problem alone. Um, but also trying to solve it only with science, I think also is not going to get us uh, as far down the road as we need to go. It needs to be a collaborative approach. And um, like in the world of climate change communication, there's been, I think, a lot of di- uh, discoveries recently or, or results of various studies recently that have shown that simply giving more information uh, to people who question climate change or aren't sure what to do about it or why it's important doesn't really solve the problem, but addressing their backgrounds, their um, how they their perspectives on life, how they approach the world, their own experiences does help convey the message better. And so we've got to have the combined approach of solid information of what we're doing, but we need to work with the arts and the humanities and our all of our cultural arts to get uh, the message across and to really come together around all of these things we need to do to address this big challenge. Then looking forward, what are some of the choices that will have to be made regarding cultural resources if that is the approach you'd like to take? There's actually two approaches for for cultural resources. There's the effects of climate change on cultural resources, and then there's this ability to learn from them. And I'll I haven't talked much about the impacts before, but we are really recognizing that a lot of our cultural heritage really is going to be affected and damaged by climate change. Now, most cultural heritage, when you, um, which includes archaeological sites, cultural landscapes, buildings and structures, ethnographic resources, which is everything that supports traditional and indigenous cultures, and museum collections, most of them have always been affected by environmental forces. But what climate change is presenting is sometimes an intensification of those forces, a recombining of them, um, adding in new stresses, and sort of changing them in different ways. Um, And the other old pressures of things like development and pollution and so forth aren't going away either. So our cultural heritage is under greater stress uh, than it has before. And if we do really, as a culture, take on this idea that we can learn from the past and that this is useful, kind of get this 
odd sort of yin-yang approach where we are realizing that we need the information that is being damaged or destroyed faster than it was before. And so it becomes sort of a a tighter cycle. We've never been able to save all of the heritage that we have. Uh, The heritage that remains to us in the present time really is sort of a subset of all of the heritage that has existed in the past. And we're losing some of our older archaeological sites. You will never get them back. Um, there, there's a finite number of them. So what we're looking at with across the Park Service and with our many partners and colleagues is first trying to understand what all of the impacts are, trying to assess their vulnerability, which sites are most at risk from what type of impact, and then starting to prioritize where do we start. We cannot save or address all of the vulnerable cultural resources at one time. Uh, Even if ultimately we were to get to all of them, we can't do them all at once. So where do we start and where do we go? And we are recognizing that given the rate of change and where some of our heritage is and how much is being affected, it is very likely we will have to say goodbye to some of those resources. And so how do we choose? And what we are trying to do is lay the groundwork and the framework and build the connections and the consultation so that we can make those sorts of decisions collectively and with the best uh, available sound science and with as many partnerships making that agreement that, yes, yes, this resource, but not that one. And that's where we're going to have to go. Marcy, thanks so much for being here. Oh, delighted. This is one of the things I think about all the time. So I love to share it. Marcy Rockman is the Climate Change Adaptation Coordinator for Cultural Resources at the National Park Service. She joined us from her office in Washington, D.C. Now we're asking for your help to inform our climate coverage. What changes have you noticed, perhaps in your own backyard? What would you like our reporters to focus on? Email us, environment at CPR.org. And from the nation's national parks to the St. Vrain River in Lyons, Colorado, it's the setting for the 26th annual Rocky Mountain Folk Festival. Americana singer and multi-instrumentalist Daryl Scott returns to the festival this weekend. He says performing at it is one of his favorite gigs. And even though he lives in Nashville, his time in Colorado shows up in his music as inspiration struck while camping in Boulder Canyon. And one night as I was driving back up to the camp, this song came basically just kind of piling right through. It was one of those where, boy, I can't wait to get up to the campground where I can write this thing down. Under the glow of a flashlight, Scott wrote what would become his song, Colorado, onto a pad of paper. Colorado, I need healing From the sorrow I've been feeling Give me misunderstood surely they will understand it takes a goddess touch to reach a godless man get him back to believing give me a small town mayor who should be dead but he trades an old guitar 
Americana singer and musician Daryl Scott's Colorado. He performs at the Rocky Mountain Folk Festival in Lyons on Saturday and teaches in the festival's song school all week. And this is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Have a great day. Colorado, I need healing from this song.